They lied to us. They lied to all of us. When we got back from seeing the judge, we felt very nervous because we thought we were going to see our children, but they were not there. They put us all in a van and drove us around for hours. When we were arriving at the new facility, all of us mothers got somewhat excited because we thought our children were going to be there. When we arrived at the new jail, we asked where the children were. The guards there said, what children? This is an adult facility. There are no children here. We all started crying desperately because they didn't tell us anything for days about where our children were. Not having any information and not being told anything about their whereabouts was the hardest part. That was the experience of a Honduran mother who was separated from her five-year-old child. Hello, and welcome to Entry Denied, a podcast series on immigration policy in the Trump years. I'm Alex Alenikov, and I'm director of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School in New York City. And I'm Deb Amos. I'm a journalist with National Public Radio, and I report on immigration. This episode is going to look at how the immigration policies of the Trump administration targeted children. We'll focus in particular on the child separation policy on the southwest border. We heard at the top the words of a mother who had been separated from her child, and we'll hear the voices of other parents throughout this episode. But we begin with a conversation with Dara Lind, a reporter from the investigative site ProPublica, who has deeply reported this topic. Dara Lind, welcome. Good to be on. So beginning in April of 2018, the, the American people saw very disturbing videos of immigrant children being taken from the arms of their parents by U.S. Border Patrol officials and ICE officials. A recording of migrant children crying for their mothers and fathers has gripped the nation and ratcheted up the debate over the Trump administration's policy of separating families at the border. The recording runs seven minutes, and those seven minutes provide a rare view into the detention facilities where children are being temporarily held. Let's listen. Dara, take us back to that moment. What was happening? In spring of 2018, the Trump administration was worried because what had been record lows in unauthorized crossings of the U.S.-Mexico border during 2017, those numbers were beginning to tick back upward. Trump didn't like numbers going up. They found that unacceptable. So as part of a strategy to attempt to disincentivize people from trying to cross into the U.S., Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced that all unauthorized immigrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border would be prosecuted in criminal court for illegal entry into the U.S. I have put in place a zero-tolerance policy for illegal entry uh, on our southwest border. If you cross the border unlawfully, then we will prosecute you. It's that simple. At the time, the Trump administration made it seem that this was not an indefinite thing, right? That the plan was to just put something on the parents' record and uh, you know, then prosecute them through. Usually you get sentenced to time served for an illegal entry if it's your first time, and then they would subsequently be reunited with their children. But as it came to light just how widespread this was, there also began to be questions about whether the administration really had been bothering to even record which parents came with which children, how it would be able to place parents with children again, whether parents were being deported uh, without their children and not getting a chance to 
to talk to them and whether the administration really did intend to reunite families or whether it was using this zero tolerance policy as a way to kind of permanently separate them and take advantage of the the fear of separation that parents might feel as a way to kind of dissuade them from entering the U.S. There was a pretty strong backlash to that policy across the country as Americans saw children in cages. They call it zero tolerance, but a better name for it is zero humanity. Separation of families needs to stop. That's not the America this, the world knows and loves. You are doing the complete opposite of the values of this nation, both in terms of democracy and human rights. It must stop now. And what we've seen today is the direct evidence of a cruel and inhumane policy. You can have a secure border and you can still have a humane policy with respect to asylum. Was that a surprise to the Trump administration? The Trump administration has been, in most respects, uh, highly insensitive to bad press on immigration. This was a not totally unique, but extremely unusual circumstance in which the administration actually found itself on the defensive. Late June of 2018, President Trump signed an executive order, which legally speaking wasn't necessary, but is certainly a reflection of the fact that they felt that Trump needed to be seen distancing himself from the zero tolerance policy. Good evening. I'm Judy Woodruff on the news hour tonight. Changing course. President Trump signs an order ending immigrant family separations. Now, parents and children will be detained together. Parents would no longer necessarily be referred for prosecution, and that instead the administration would pursue a policy of trying to keep families in immigration detention indefinitely until they could presumably be deported back to their home countries. Let's put this in a bit of historical context. Migrant families with their children, that wasn't new. Uh, the Obama administration dealt with the the same challenge. How did they do it and how different was that? Unaccompanied migrant children became a large migrant flow in the second term of the Obama administration. And the Obama administration's response to a rise in numbers was like the Trump administration's response to try to find ways to stop people from wanting to come. The short version of this is that you can't simply deport someone who asks for asylum in the U.S. You have to give them a hearing in immigration court. But the Obama administration did its darndest to check all of the necessary boxes within a matter of weeks so that they could send people back as quickly as possible. They were ultimately stopped from that policy by a judicial ruling that held that you couldn't keep kids in immigration detention, even if you were keeping them with their parents, for more than a certain amount of time, which in practice worked out to about 20 days. What the Trump administration has said it wants to do is what the Obama administration had been doing before it got shut down by the courts, which is to keep everyone in detention for as long as it takes until their court case is completed. How many kids were separated under this program? We know that at the time that a federal judge issued his order that every kid who was in U.S. custody at that time had to get reunited with parents if they'd been separated from them. At that point, there were 2,800 or so kids who had been separated from parents uh, who were still in custody. Most of them got reunited with their parents within the you know, month that they were, that the federal government had to orchestrate all of these 
reunifications. Um, some of them, those parents had already been deported and there has been ongoing litigation about whether they're allowed to come back to the U.S. to apply for asylum with their children. So zero tolerance and the child separation policy are adopted to deter the arrival of families. They're abandoned because of public outrage and a court decision. And in fact, the numbers begin to go back up and by the middle of 2019, What's left in the Trump arsenal at that point to deal with family arrivals and to to get these numbers down? What did they do? There is an idea among some, including some who were in the Trump administration at the time, that whatever benefit they thought they were going to get from separating families in terms of deterring families in Central America from deciding to come to the U.S. was not only totally wiped out, but was much smaller than the damage they did to themselves by creating a round of headlines that made it very clear that if you came with your child to the United States, you would not get separated because of this executive order and this court decision. As far as what the administration had in response, the Trump administration had been working really since arriving in office in 2017. What what they really wanted was to prevent people who had come through Central America or parts south from there, through Mexico to the U.S., and their claim asylum. They wanted to find some way that they would just not have to accept those people onto U.S. soil. They worked out a policy called the Migrant Protection Protocols, in which if a family from Central America came through Mexico to the U.S., they would get a court date in the U.S. for an asylum case, but they would have to wait in Mexico for that court date. So we go from kids in cages to kids living in parking lots in Mexico with with their families, uh, you know, not going to school, hardly able to wash. And Americans don't really notice that, not nearly the way they noticed kids in cages. Does that then also become a successful policy for the Trump administration because Americans really weren't paying attention to to that change? It was so frustrating to me and it was so frustrating to the other journalists I know and to the immigration lawyers and, you know, the policy wonks that there was so much good work being done documenting what was happening just over the border in Mexico. The lack of interest in anything going on on the Mexican side of the border from the U.S. was really, I think, surprising to a lot of us. So, Dara, you've described a, a range of policies here adopted by the administration to respond to the arrival of children at the southwest border. The child separation policy, which was abandoned after public outrage, the migrant protection protocols. Is that a fair summary? It looks like the Trump administration has hacked its way to some kind of solution. It's not going to have to, unless things change radically, walk this back like it had to walk back family separation for like bad press reasons. It hasn't gotten the immediate court smackdowns that caused it to have to go back and revise the travel ban twice, you know, radically, or that eventually slammed the door on family separation just in case they had wanted to bring it back. That was ProPublica's Dara Lynn talking about some of what she uncovered in her reporting. My three-year-old son and I were turned away at the port of entry four times before they let us in so that I could apply for a set. After waiting for hours, they put chains around my hands and feet and told me my son would not be allowed to stay with me. 
He had fallen asleep, so he didn't see them take me away. Why didn't they tell me they were going to separate me from my son? My baby was born premature at six months. Even though he's now three, he can barely talk. I am the only one who knows how to treat him. I wasn't even able to tell anyone that my son had special needs because I didn't know I was going to be separated from him for so long and that I wasn't going to see him again. I had no idea this was going to happen. Why didn't they just tell me? That's a father from El Salvador who was separated from his three-year-old son. Next, we hear from Dr. Ranit Mashouri, a professor of family medicine at the Georgetown University School of Medicine. She and her colleagues at Physicians for Human Rights produced a report on the impact of the child separation policy on children and their parents. Deb, do you want to briefly describe how they conducted their study? Yeah, sure. A dozen physicians interviewed asylum seekers after they were reunited with their children. The interviews are called medical affidavits. So the report was written after a review of that data, and the study shows the results of the separation policy on the kids and on their parents. So can you talk a little bit about the narratives that the parents and the children told you? They had walked and traveled for days on end, crossed the border, and as soon as they crossed the border, they were taken into custody. They arrived at the border with a lot of trauma, including death threats and physical and sexual assault in their home countries. Their relatives were killed. They were victims of extortion and gang activity. And so already, even before they were put in detention, they had very, very high levels of fear. What happened next is that the immigration authorities forcibly removed the children from their parents' arms, uh, in some cases very forcibly uh, and violently. They removed parents while their children slept. And sometimes, in some cases, kids were just not there suddenly when the parent went back to the room or when the parent woke up or after the parent came back from a bathroom break or when the parents went to court, for example, or went to the doctors, to the infirmary to get something, and then they were back, and suddenly the kids were not there. So these were forced disappearances, completely unanticipated by the parents. And what we also heard in these stories that most families did not receive any information as to why they were being separated, would they be reunited, how to get in touch with these children. They found out later through several means that the children were sometimes sent to facilities hundreds and thousands of miles away from the parents um, in different states. Did these parents, did they have any idea what was going to happen when, when they got to the border? Did they have a sense that they were going to be welcomed or did they have any notion of what was going to happen to them? I don't think that they had any notion of what was coming. I think the first uh, shock is that they were being treated as criminals, even though asylum seeking is a legal right and a universal human right, thrown into these facilities that we've all seen on the news with the overcrowding and the filth and no soaps and sleeping on the, on the floor and the cold temperatures. And then on top of that, uh, suddenly, you know, not one, not two, not three, not four, hundreds, even thousands, more of them were separated and and disappeared from these parents. And what did your clinicians uh, discover was the mental health impact on both the parents and the kids? 
in nearly every single case that we looked at, everyone evaluated exhibited some symptoms and behaviors consistent with trauma and um, mental health diagnoses. They all met criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder, major depressive disorder, anxiety disorders, and they're all directly related, uh, again, according to these clinicians, to the experiences of these families because of the child separation. The children themselves that were evaluated also were showing symptoms of mental health conditions such as anxiety and depression, but also, as is more common in children, they showed symptoms of suggesting of regression. So these are generally sort of situations where age-appropriate behaviors stop for some reason, usually because of trauma. So kids would be crying, not eating, wetting themselves, having nightmares and sleeping difficulties, and in many cases, um, losing developmental milestones like speech and also clinging to their parents. So the stories of a parent who can't go to the bathroom on their own after reunification because the child is so clingy and afraid that the parent would be taken away from them again. How much is this long term? Well, some of the evaluations had taken place uh, about a year after the events suggesting that this is long term. We know from not just from the situation uh, with the asylum seekers at the border, but from sort of general health research that, especially for children, trauma when you're a child, and especially repeated trauma, meaning something that happens, it's traumatic and stresses the child on a daily basis or week by week or for long periods of time, like weeks and, and months and years, which is exactly what happened here, that that kind of trauma can cause long-term effects in terms of child development, neurological changes to the brain, behaviors, aptitude for learning. So we know that that kind of stress, that kind of trauma is incredibly harmful, uh, not just in the short term, but definitely in the long term for years to come. I understand that in addition to this study that you have actually traveled to the other side of the U.S. border in Mexico, where um, Thousands of asylum seekers have been told to remain in Mexico while their asylum case is pending. What did you see there? What I've seen across the border is really desperate and destitute people living in horrible conditions. When you talk to them, you can see the sadness in their eyes. You can see the the fear in their eyes. The conditions in Matamoros, which is the place that I visited with my colleagues, is not only so awful, pretty much people living in, in tents without running water, but it's also very dangerous. There are a lot of confirmed reports of people being physically harmed, of rapes, of violence, of extortion and kidnappings from the encampment in Matamoros. So these people and their children are there. They're scared. You can sometimes see flat and blank looks on their faces because of the fear, because of the uncertainty of what would happen. The policy didn't say do mental health harm to children. It said separate them from their parents. But was there any way to carry that out without doing mental damage to these children? I don't think that anyone who knows anything about children and parents would ever come to imagine that this would not be harmful. I mean, I just don't understand how anyone could think about doing something like that. Uh, unfortunately, there's a long history in American history and, and world history where such situations where parents are separated forcibly from their children, um, those situations were considered 
um, crimes against humanity. You don't have to be a psychiatrist to think about the potential harm to a child uh, suddenly being yanked away from the only source of consistency and safety that they know in their lives. I mean, this is so horrible that when we looked at the testimonies and when we analyzed the data, we realized that what we were seeing um, was something that falls within the criteria of torture, and which is why we, after many, many discussions and internal um, conversations, we decided to take the unusual step of, of calling what we were reading about constituted torture and um, inhumane and degrading treatment. The asylum courts are, are quite backlogged in the United States, and, and asylum seekers seem to be waiting for months and months and months on the other side of the border, now pushed back by the, the Border Patrol. And you've described situations where parents really were not given information about their children or about the process. To what extent does that kind of uncertainty add to the trauma here? You know, in human nature, we want to know what is happening and then when something bad happens, we want to know that it's going to end uh, or that we want to, to have the agency or some sense of control over the situation. But if there's uncertainty and you have no agency and no sense of control, that contributes to anxiety and, and depression. And we can see that you know, on a different scale and different level with, this, with the current pandemic. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or next week. And we don't know whether when this situation is going to end. So a lot of people are feeling anxious. So imagine having all of this happening, the sort of same situation, but you're, <laughs> you're in captivity. You, you don't even have the freedom to um, try to help yourself with legal representation or asking for help from people from outside of the um, detention facilities. So the, the, the level of not only the uncertainty, but the, the lack of agency and the lack of control over the situation is destructive enough to cause a lot of mental health symptoms that may then lead to um, mental health diagnoses and conditions. Dr. Mishori, I'm hearing you describe a situation of what maybe we could call a compound trauma. You had uh, families leaving dangerous situations, traumatic situations at home, undertaking dangerous travel uh, through Mexico, and then running into a U.S. asylum system that seems to have taken that trauma to an exponential level. Is that a, a fair understanding of what you said? Yes, exactly. So all of these people, without exception, um, had experienced trauma, which is not only the trauma in their home country, which led them to flee. On top of that, there was the trauma of the journey. And then they come to the United States thinking that, oh God, at least maybe, you know, I'll have a reprieve. Then there's this even worse trauma inflicted um, while they're here in, in detention. It, it, it makes it harder to know whether their mental health symptoms are caused by one or the other, but certainly it was exacerbated by the treatment they received here in the U.S. in the detention centers and then by those acts of child separation that they had to experience. Do you have a particular story, um, a child, a parent, that sticks in your mind, somebody who is maybe representative of the community? I've been doing this work in human rights for almost 20 years, and I've interviewed torture survivors from literally every part of the world. And I'm very used to dealing with people in my clinical practice who are 
victims of sexual violence and, and discrimination and racism. But the stories that I read were just so shocking and like a punch in the gut. I could not believe what I was reading, the cruelty on the part of the guards. Some things that stick to mind are the, the stories of one guard who told the mom, as the mom was recounting to the clinician, um, the guard told her, you will never see your child again, sort of suddenly out of the blue. A mom who was given a piece of paper with a phone number that the guard said was that was that's where her child was. Um, she could contact her child, but it turned out to be a completely fake phone number. You know the fact that the the, the cruelty of belittling the um, the parents, belittling their pain, disregarding their their cries for help. I mean, it's just so shocking and inhumane. And uh, so even for somebody like me, who's seen and heard it all it was just it was it was too much and that the idea that this is happening in the united states by our own government was just something that i will never forget and never forgive thank you dr renit mishuri i haven't seen my son in over two months i don't want anything from the united states other than my son those were the words of a father who was separated from his nine-year-old son. That's it for this episode of Entry Denied. Thanks for joining us. Throughout this episode, you heard the stories of parents separated from their children. The statements were provided to us by kind kids in need of defense and were read by Aaron Johnson, Cassidy Giordano, Camilla Figueroa Restrepo, and Anna Ramirez Navarro. Check our show notes on EntryDeniedPodcast.com and you'll find a lot of resources to help you go even deeper into some of the issues we talked about in this episode. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. And leave us a review as well. We'd love to hear from you. See you next week.